together, uh, worship his holy name. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go through the, pretty much the entire chapter, but for our reading we'll do verses 18 through 25. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is God's word. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word, that you would be glorified by our time together. We love you, and we just ask that you would change our hearts through this text. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you were with us last week, you'll remember we begin our time together uh, in consideration of the transgender movement by asking the question asked by so many before us, what is truth? And that sermon had some challenges that you may not have realized, including uh, Thomas is asking me to get through the entire sermon without using the P word, the B word, or the V word, which I was pretty good at, right? I mean, I did say penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> I cannot promise that we'll get through these next two. I can't give you the same assurance. Our consideration of the transgender movement by asking the questions, what is truth? We learn that truth is truth. Truth is fixed. Truth is not subjective. And that truth is true for everyone. It just is. It's objective. It corresponds with reality, a reality which cannot be altered or thwarted, no matter how strongly a person may feel any given issue. There's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's only truth. Because truth is something does not originate with us, but rather it comes from the very standard of truth, the very source of all truth, the Creator God Himself. So, when speaking on issues related to gender and gender identity and gender dysphoria and all these other man-made theories and labels, we did not go to the world for the opinions of the world. We went back to the source of truth, uh, 
And we went back to the means by which he the truth to us, and that is his holy and inspired word, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And with those words, the national discussion and the cultural debate should be over, done, finished, settled. Certainly in the eyes of faithful men and women of God. But now we move on to another highly contentious issue, more prevalent within the walls of our churches, and that is the truth of gender roles. Gender roles. So, two genders, only two genders, male and female. Uh, The truth of gender cannot be reduced to a mere feeling. It's settled. That's been settled. But the question is, why two genders? For what purpose are there two genders? And how, then, are the people who are created and divinely assigned one of these two genders supposed to then function and cohabitate together in life on this earth here. So uh, the elders figured, as long as we've gotten into the bear-poking business, uh, we may as well get in all our pokes at once here before getting back into our regular study in Acts. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at gender roles, okay? We'll be looking at priority. We'll be looking at headship. We'll be looking at authority, and specifically within the home and the church, Ultimately, we're not uh, concerned with the world's view on these things. We're not concerned with gender in world politics or world governance or in academia or sports and entertainment or business or any such thing. No, we don't have time for any of that on the Lord's Day morning. We're concerned with the truth of men and women's roles in the home. And we're concerned with the truth of men and women's roles in the church. These are the two most important institutions in the life of any believer. Now, in our quest for truths of gender distinction and differing roles within the home and the church, it would be mighty hypocritical of us, in light of last week's message, to go anywhere other than the divinely inspired text, for their author is the source of all truths, right? So let's do that now. You have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2. The main section we're going to consider is what we just read, verses 18 through 25. We'll get to that shortly, but before we do, I want you to look up near the top at verses 1 through 3. Here we're given the conclusion of everything that just happened in chapter 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, Moses writes, and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and from all his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it from all his work which God had created in making it. He then goes on in verses 4 through 15 to provide a more detailed description of some of the events of the first six days. And specifically, he provides details of the creation of man, which was used in chapter 1 in a general sense, man referring to both men and women. These are the generations of the heavens created in that day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. He said, on earth at this time, there was no shrub. There were no plants. God hadn't yet caused it to rain. Plus, no man was there to cultivate. So, 
God created a stream. And the stream, the water rose up, it came up, it covered the whole surface of the ground. Now, I want you to look at verse 7 with me, okay? This verse will be absolutely key, absolutely key in our consideration of gender roles uh, both this week and next week, okay? Verse 7. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Don't take my word for it. You got to see it. Verse 7 says, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Now, what does that verse demonstrate for us? Authority. Last week, what is truth? This week, next week, what is authority? And who actually possesses authority? How much authority do they have? Where did they get this authority? And how are they to use the authority that they've been given? Well, this verse, verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, may very well be the best text in all of Scripture for establishing the baseline of the authority that mankind has over every sphere of influence, certainly in both the home and the church. It's a key verse for us. I'll just say it now. We'll elaborate on this next week a little bit, though. But today we really see two extremes in modern-day American evangelicalism, which is one of several reasons why I hesitate to even take the name evangelical. Uh, Two extremes. You either have the liberal, uh, feministic seminaries and churches and pastors out there who have developed this uh, cultural egalitarian view on gender roles and sought to import it into their churches, even into the home, namely saying that there are no spiritual distinctions in terms of man or woman across the board, but that we are all equal in God's sight. They would say there is neither male nor female nor Greek nor Jew nor slave nor free, which they're exactly right. Paul would say in matters related to salvation in a salvific manner. But they would say, yeah, in terms of the home, in terms of the church, society in general, man is in no way superior to woman. We will in no wise submit to any man on the basis of gender alone. There's certainly an empowerment going on here, but... It's fueled by the same wicked culture we referenced last week, and it certainly doesn't stem from the foundational principle of biblical manhood and womanhood. And so they will take these extreme views and they'll say, we will brush aside or put behind or willfully ignore altogether texts which give crystal clear instruction on the different roles of men and women in the church and in the home so that We can maintain our truth and carry on with how we feel these institutions should be governed. Again, it basically goes back to what we talked about last week. This is my idea of truth. This is is my truth, and you have your truth, which, when it's all said and done, that's nothing more than my opinion and your opinion, my feelings and your feelings, my preferences and your preferences. In terms of equality and submission, I think James Montgomery Boyce said it best. He said, In our day, many say that there are no essential differences between men and women, or that whatever differences there are are accidental. 
This is understandable from those who think that mindless evolution is the means by which we have come to be what we are. We have become what we are. But it is entirely incomprehensible from the standpoint of the Bible, which tells us that nothing is an accident and that sexuality in in particular is the result of the creative act of God. Maleness and femaleness are therefore good. They are meaningful, just as other aspects of God's creation are good and meaningful. Men are not women. Women are not men. He said one of the saddest things in the universe is a man who tries to be a woman or a woman who tries to be a man. But who is superior, someone asks. I answer, a man is absolutely superior to a woman at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior to a man at being a woman. But let a woman try to be a man or a man try to be a woman and you have a monstrosity. And I would agree. This egalitarian philosophy does so much damage to the home and the church and really every other facet of society as it fosters a culture of misled women and weak, passive men. Now that's the refutation of the liberal theologians and churches, which is always easy to do, but let's bring it home for a minute, okay? I want to be very clear about this. On the other extreme, there are many, many men within churches like ours, churches who hold to the biblical view on gender roles, both within the marriage and the assembling together of the body, who are guilty of perhaps an even greater sin. We have the ability in churches like ours, with distinctives like ours, uh, to attract the worst types of men. We've had them in the past in our churches. We've even had them here at Lakewood. Abusive men, oppressive men, harsh, controlling, manipulative men who view their wives as nothing more than an object created solely to serve and benefit them. Men who have taken the text that we'll consider over this next couple of weeks having to do with headship and submission and subjection and have totally distorted them for their own advantage. Men who have destroyed their families or are destroying their families, who have destroyed their wives and their children for their own selfish gain have used, by using an, a distorted interpretation of the divinely inspired scriptures as their weapon of choice. But we're not going to stand for that. We will not be a safe harbor for oppressive and abusive men. We're going to bring these men back to reality, to the truth. We're going to show them that the way they're conducting themselves is not in accordance with the principles set forth in the divinely inspired scriptures. And it's certainly not in accordance with the conduct of a spirit-indwelled man of God. So we're going to be real. And we're going to be honest and blunt. Which typically men like this hate to hear. End up making us the bad guys. We're going to do it anyway. And we're going to call you to repentance if this describes you. That's why we're uh, considering gender roles this week and next. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not at either extreme, which is, is the goal. I hope this uh, helps stay this way, uh, things stay this way, but I don't know, maybe you're a single here this morning, you haven't even gotten engaged yet. 
We want to teach you the foundational truths, the foundational principles of biblical headship so that maybe it will protect you from drifting uh, to one side or the other or, or marrying somebody who has. And again, it all starts right here in verse 7, okay? And just in terms of authority, I think the first thing we all need to receive is a big, fat, heaping dose of humility. And it happens right here, okay? Any authority that a person has in this world, husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, church leaders, we must understand that this was an authority given to us by God himself. From the creation of the very first man, Adam, we read again, Then Yahweh formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. First of all, from what were we created? Dust. Dust. I love what Matthew Henry said on this. He said, the matter was despicable. He was made of the dust of the ground, a very unlikely thing to make a man of, but the same infinite power that made the world out of nothing made man, its masterpiece, next to nothing. He was made of the dust, the small dust, such as is on the, uh, upon the surface of the earth, probably not dry dust, but dust moistened with the mist that went up. Note, he was not made of gold dust, He was not made of powder of pearl or diamond dust, but common dust, dust of the ground. Not evil dust, not worthless dust, but near nothing dust, dust that was next to nothing. The same dust that the serpent would be forced to crawl upon his belly and eat all the rest of the days of his life. Uh, The same dust that... Job said he would soon lie down in and die. The same dust that the writer of Ecclesiastes said we would all go back to. We all go back to the same place. All came from the dust, all returned to the dust. The same dust that Abraham fully acknowledged when approaching God, uh, petitioning him for Sodom, saying in absolute humility, Behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust. And ashes. That's a foundational component of biblical manhood and womanhood, humility. Humility in biblical headship. Remember your origins. God formed man from dust of the ground. He was of the earth, just like we read of the animals in verse 19. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. Same with Adam, but with one major difference. He also breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is what separates us from the animals. Now, animals can make great uh, temporal companions. They can be very personal. They can be very charming, and at times they can be affectionate. But obviously they're missing a, a crucial component which human beings possess, Man is distinct from animals in that we are aware of our existence. And this destroys yet another liberal theory that we evolved from whatever it is this century, this decade. In other words, 
we, we have a conscious awareness that we are, in fact, living beings with living souls and our interactions with other living beings and souls. This is evident. Dogs and horses and apes, they simply don't have this. They don't have it. it it's an awareness and a consciousness that stays with us both in this life and the next. It's the word spiritus in Latin, pneuma in the Greek, the ruach in the Hebrew. I just look at Annie and Lael, make sure I said that right. Um, it's the, the wind, breath, the mind, the spirit given to us by the living God himself. So we, by nature, had, had a little bit of earth and a little bit of heaven in our makeup. He created us from the dust. He loans us breath. So in terms of authority within gender roles, we must first recognize our utter dependence upon the breath-giving God. One of the greatest sections in all of Scripture is Isaiah chapter 2. He talks about the coming day of judgment from Yahweh on an apostate, idolatrous nation. Uh, He says, For Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning. The loftiness of man will be bowed down. The men who are high will be made low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. But in the meantime, he graciously gives his people some advice. Okay, Here's what he says. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? In other words, don't place your ultimate trust in man and man's claims. Corrupt leaders like those in Isaiah chapter 2 will typically lead you astray. Don't place your trust in other men who, like you, are fully dependent upon another to take a breath into his nostrils. Don't, pl- don't place your trust in breath takers. Rather, place your ultimate trust in the breath maker, the divine breath giver. Uh, this, this verse 7 is, is crucial in matters related to biblical headship because it does two things. First, it places us all on the same level. All of us are absolutely and totally dependent upon our creator even for the next breath that goes into our lungs, for the next breath that's in our nostrils. Second, it gives us yet another reminder of whose claims and testimonies are actually worth believing. And God's words trump man's words every time. What that means, though, is as Christians... As Christian men and women, we ought to always seek to submit our lives fully to the principles God has laid out in these divinely inspired scriptures, including in matters related to the distinction between men and women, women's roles and men's roles in the home and the church. These are his his prescriptions here for how we're to operate within the home and the church. Now, quickly. Verses 8 through 14, they give us details on a place called Eden, okay? This is paradise. There's beautiful trees, there's beautiful rivers, the best of foods, even a lush garden, which you'll notice in verse 8, God places the man in the midst of. And again, he didn't even create the man out of garden dust. He created him out of this dust and then put him into the garden. And for a purpose, look at verse 15. 
Yahweh God took the man, set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and, cap, and keep it. Excuse me. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. This makes sense. Here's a divine command from the giver of life. He's saying, I made you, I formed you, I put breath into your nostrils, my breath into your nostrils. I, I placed you in my garden, in my paradise, on my earth, which is in my heavens, all which I spoke into existence by the very word of my power. So don't eat from that tree. And you know what? Adam had no problem with that. Why? Well, because... God had authoritatively declared all things good. Here's the authoritative evaluation. He said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He formed the land. He formed the waters. He called them seas. And God saw that it was good. Vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that this was good. Great light to rule the day, a lesser light to rule the night. He places them in the expanse of the heavens. God saw that it was good. He then creates the great sea monsters, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm after their kind, and every winged bird of its kind. And God saw that it was good. He made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Everything that God made from days one through six, including the man, both male and female, male and female whom he created in his own image was good. In fact, Moses said, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. So he rests. Then we read more details of how man was created, uh, the breath, the nostrils, and how God makes man, puts him in the garden where we realize something is not good. Okay? Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. There you go. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's not good. This is not good. The guy that I just formed out of the dust and breathed life into, he's all alone. Well, so what did God do about it? He said, I'll make it good. Verse 18, I will make him a helper suitable for him. You know, this is one of those words, helper. Uh, This is one of those words that when spoken, it's like nails on a chalkboard to the liberal. Uh, You go to any of the universities, Christian or otherwise, in the country here, you start throwing around around words like this. You better have a good exit strategy. Uh, Professors and students alike, uh, the claws will come out. But remember now, Whose word are we going to trust and obey? That's right. That's right. Are we going to trust the words of the breath taker or the breath giver, the breath maker? It's the word of the one who says, I have made man this male being and he is alone. This is not a good situation, but I'm about to make it good. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get him in on the process here. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show him his need for a helper, his need for a companion. Look at verse 19. Here's the authoritative delegation. Uh, 
And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every burst, uh, excuse me, beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so again, God gives details on what transpired in the previous chapter. He's forming these animals, and he's obviously forming them in pairs, males and females, so that they can be fruitful and multiply, which was a mandate given for them in Genesis chapter 1, right? Verse 22, he created the sea monsters. He created every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. Them? Who's them? Adam and Eve? No, no, no. They were created five verses later. They were given a mandate as well in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. But this had the added mandate or added instruction to it to subdue the earth, have dominion over all these animals and all the birds and the animals who I just told moments before you, be fruitful and multiply. How could they be fruitful and multiply? Well, let's go back to the basics here. There were male ravens and female ravens. There were <laughs> male dolphins and female dolphins, male cattle and female cattle, male giraffes and female giraffes, and the elephants and monkeys and every other kind of animal that we know about, paired together, given the ability to reproduce. So... Here is man, who we now notice in verse 20 is named Adam, man. Here's Adam. He's got all these animals coming to him in pairs. And on this particular day, Yahweh God, the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth, has delegated the responsibility of naming animals to him. Okay? This is very significant because it's a display of headship. Okay, Adam is naming these animals because Adam has been given uh, authority to subdue the earth and have dominion over them, right? But Adam is still under the authority of God himself, right? That's headship. So back to naming the animals here. We don't know what language was used here, okay? Well, a lot of folks in church, especially down south, think that he was speaking the king's English. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. It was uh, likely, though, it wasn't Hebrew or Latin or any other language we're, we're familiar with. We probably don't know. Do you know, John? That wasn't an age joke. I just thought I heard you say something. I'm sorry. That was inappropriate. But in, in some language, he bestowed upon these animals their name. And it was, I'm sorry, I thought you said something. That's the only reason I said that. I would have said it to anybody else in here. As he's naming, he's giving these animals their names, it, it, it wasn't just random, it was deliberate. Uh, you know, oh, that one is fierce, I'll call him a tiger. You know, that one's really slow, I think I'll call him a sloth. Uh, that one over there, that's a spiny lump sucker. <laughs> that's a real name, by the way. He's probably thinking, what gives, man? Why do you know? That was just some English name ascribed by a scientist 100 years ago or something. But these names, these original names of these original animals in whatever language was spoken, these were thoughtful names. These were meaningful names. 
they weren't just random gobbledygook names that came from the lips of Adam here. They, there was an intentionality behind this naming. Adam had to know them. He had to study their traits and characteristics. This is how they were formed. This is why they were formed. This is how their helpers or their companions were formed. You know, I'm noticing um, in some of the areas where the male zebra is lacking, the female zebra seems to be able to compensate. Uh, maybe God already created full herds by this time. I, you know, I don't know. But Adam may have said, you know, where the male horse seems to be strong and powerful and protective in nature while he's been leading the way and selecting the next patch of grass for his family to feed on, the female horse has not let her foal out of her sight. Uh, she's nurturing. She's tender. She's gentle. And so um, he's studying these animals. He's studying these animals carefully. And it's a big responsibility. Now, something we should know about Adam. We have to remember this is pre-fall Adam. Pre-fall Adam. Many think, apart from the incarnate God, Christ himself, many think that Adam was the best and the brightest, most intelligent and most capable man the world has ever known. He was probably a picture of perfect health, both mental and physical. He was untouched by the fall at this point here. Uh, Martin Luther said not only was he the most intelligent, but his physical capacities were the most complete and the finest. He said his eyes were sharper than the eyes of a lynx, sharper than the eyes of an eagle. He was stronger than the lion and the bear. He commanded them and handed them, handled them like they were trained dogs. That was Luther. I think this is true. But don't forget now, as great of a specimen as Adam was, he was lacking something, wasn't he? He was alone, and this was not good. This deficiency became clearer and clearer with each animal that he named. But in verse 20, we see he keeps right on in obedience to his creator. The text said the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. But here comes the divine provision and the authoritative operation. Verse 21. So... Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in that place, and Yahweh God fashioned a rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Now, what did this look like here? Did, did God put some chloroform on a rag, knock him out, lean him up against a tree, cut, start cutting into his side? Uh, did he break off a rib, rib and dress up the wound with some antibiotics and some gauze to soak up the blood, then put a bandage over him, say, come back and see me in two months. Just take it easy, Adam. Is that what this looked like? I don't know. I wasn't there. I doubt he needed chloroform, though. I, d I don't think he needed any gauze. Uh, we do know that he, know he knows how to make a hand leprous in an instant and then make it clean again, just like that. We know he could do that. Even Jesus, when he walked the very earth that he spoke into existence, caused limbs to grow, uh, muscles and tendons to form instantly at his very command. Blind eyes all of a sudden work. Deaf ears all of a sudden work immediately. So this wouldn't be a difficult operation for God. We aren't given the details of the procedure, but we do know, however, it was a literal operation. There was flesh. There was bone. 
there was an opening and there was a closing. And that's how the help meet was formed. How do we know that? Because that's what it says. It says, Yahweh took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. Yahweh, God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from man, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, that's an interesting parallel there. Uh, he brings the woman to the man. What, what does this mean, that the woman... What, what is he trying to say here? That the woman is nothing more than, a, than an animal? That, that Adam has authority over? That he has dominion over? He's bringing her to Adam like, like he brought the animals to Adam? Now, some men throughout the history of the church and even up to and, and in our churches today, some men would froth at the mouth and they would be frothing so much they were barely able to get out their resounding yeses and amens. We've seen those who seem to take it that way, but these are post-fall men. These are likely unregenerate men. And I'll tell you what, this certainly wasn't Adam's perspective on the woman. And much, much, much more importantly, it isn't God's perspective either on women. It's not his principle. Adam, sharp, brilliant, beautiful, powerful, authoritative, in the sense that God delegated responsibility to him, Adam says, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Look at this joyful declaration here. She was not made from the dust. This one is not like the animals. She's like me. She has intellect. She has ability, sociability. She has the, an awareness that she's alive. She is conscious of the reality of her existence, and she is relational. She even sees that I'm the same way. Uh, she is exactly what I needed to complete me. Okay, this was the original Jerry Maguire, but they completed each other. So this was Jerry and Sherry Maguire, where there was lack and deficiency. She brings completeness and sufficiency including in the ability to be obedient to God's command to be fruitful and multiply, right? Including the procreation of offspring, the very continuation of the human race. This is why he's so grateful. He knows. After all these animals, after all these cattle and these birds, this one finally is bone of my bones. She's flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Because this one was taken from Ish, I will name her Isha, woman. This is, there's great relief in this uh, expression. She's a gift from Yahweh. Yahweh has given me a gift, a great gift, one who is like me, made from me, made for me, given to me, and named by me. Notice those words again. She's a gift, a gift from God. She's a companion, a helper, fit for man. Verse 18 and 20. Formed from the man, verses, verse 22. Brought to the man, verse 22. And named by the man, verse 23. Man was made first. He was given priority. He was given authority but it was an authority that was under God's authority to, lo to love and lead his precious daughter. 
the precious daughter of God. Again, I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, Let us remember that God did not take the woman from man's feet to be trampled upon and enslaved, nor from his head that she should dominate him, but from his side to be his companion, from beneath his arm to receive his protection, and from near his heart to have his love and affection. Isn't that good? There is biblical manhood and womanhood in its original pre-fall condition. Here's the divine principle for the structure of the relationship between a man and a woman. She is equal with man in terms of being a human being created in God's image. She's not a ma- an animal for man to use for his own benefit. She, she's, she's part of the God made man in his own image, male and female. He made the truth that we read about a chapter earlier. She is equal in the sense that she's given divine mandates and and divine commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't eat from that tree. Uh, She's equal to man in all these monumentally significant areas, but she is different than man. And man is different from her in terms of role and function. Again, terminology is key here. Adam is alone. Adam needs help. Adam is lacking. Just in the most basic sense, Adam can't be faithful in his duty to make another Adam on his own. He can't do it. Now, God can make a billion Adams out of a gazillion dust particles if he chose to do so, but that's not how he chose to do it. In the same way, God could have filled the earth with women who had the ability to reproduce on their own, but he didn't, which is evidenced by the fact that we're all sitting here or standing here as male and female. Uh, He could have done anything he wanted to do, and he did. This is how he created us. This is how he delegated authority and responsibility, just like last week. His word, his world, his standards, his determinations, and his decree, whether you agree with them or not, whether you believe in them or not, this is the truth from the one who gave you your life and sustains your life right now as you sit there listening to this text. If you don't believe him, he at least has the satisfaction in knowing that you walk out of this place fully aware that he has afforded you the opportunity to reject him with that little bit of air that he just put into your nostrils. You have to reject him with... He created them male and female. He created the man from the dust. He breathed life into his nostrils, distinguishing him from the animals. He made woman, not of the dust, but from the man, allowing her to be distinguished from the animals. Flesh, my flesh, my bones, my, my divine breath. Adam, excuse me, Adam says, my flesh, my bones. She has the divine breath of the Lord. But Adam says, she has a nature just like me. Just like me. But she is still for me. Okay? She's still a helper for me. I am her head. I am the leader. I have been given authority over her. I mean, I named her, called her woman. That's a display of authority. But I will be held responsible and accountable for how I chose to use that authority, how I choose to lead both her and our family, both which require humility, which we'll get into uh, next week as we discuss biblical headship in the church and the home. But remember the first question that we have to ask, who is this authority given by? 
Who is it given by? God. Which means, even though man is given some authority over a woman in certain settings, as we'll see next week, it's, uh, it's an authority that the woman has to voluntarily submit to or subject herself to, whose authority is man still under? God's. So, has a man been given the authority to treat a woman any way that he deems best? No. Man must treat a woman given by God in the way that God deems best, according to his principles, which he lays out in crystal clear fashion in his divinely inspired text. We don't even get out of the second chapter without his defining some of the parameters by which, which they must operate under. Look at, look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. It's such an important conclusion to this passage here. The Lord didn't simply provide Adam with a fit helper and suitable companion. He also established marriage as the first of all human institutions. One man, one woman, coming together in a divinely instituted ordinance. He, he, um, he leaves his mom and dad, who are also male and female. The two become one, now united before God in body, mind, spirit, until death do they part. A divine institution which no man can alter or thwart. Only, only unions and marriages, according to God's directive, are legitimate unions, right? Meaning there is no such thing as gay marriage. It doesn't exist. That's not even real. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's all a show for a society that's under delusion, uh, there was, however, divinely ordained wedding ceremony and union in the garden. These two got married. How do we know this? Well, Moses said in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. Their bodies were out in the open, just like all the rest of creation. What you see is what you get. No shame, no embarrassment, no guilt. Life was easy and life was breezy. Life was easy breezy. But that's all about to change, isn't it? The garden honeymoon is not going to last very long. Chapter 3 is quickly peeking around the corner. Adam and his bride are about to fall, cause the fall and separation from God for every generation that followed, including ours. But for now, chapter 2, pre-fall, we see the principle of biblical manhood and womanhood, which is the foundation of God-given authority in the home and, as we'll see, in the household of God. This week, the principle for biblical manhood and womanhood. Here it is. Here it is. His model, pre-fall, Genesis chapter 2. Next week, the practice of biblical manhood and womanhood. What does this look like, practically speaking, and in a fallen and corrupted world with Hearts full of humility, we're going to look at what Jesus said of headship and submission. Here's a teaser. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Okay? We're going to look at what Paul says about headship and submission. Here's a spoiler. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at what Peter and James said about headship and submission. You get the picture here. They all allude to the principle laid out in Genesis chapter 2. And in doing so, they give us a beautiful, wonderful picture of godly submission and headship modeled and demonstrated by our very Lord and Savior himself. For now, 
If you're here this morning, you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then regardless of what we talked about today, regardless of what we talk about next week, you don't have the capacity or ability to live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to, to him. Not in marriage, not in the church, not in any venue or any part of your life, frankly. But that can change this morning. I would invite you to place your trust in the divine breath giver this morning. He has provided a way for sinful men and women to be restored, to be reconciled to him, and even indwelled with his very Holy Spirit by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, in his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. So I'd invite you to ask him for his forgiveness of your own failings, your own falling short, to put his spirit within you who will give you the ability to walk according to his commands and will seal you for life with him everlasting. I'd like to know more about this. Please see me after the service or Thomas or Chris or Brad. We'd be happy to talk with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll have Paul and the musicians come back up and lead us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for your word and just the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your creation that you, by your grace alone, created us, gave us life, breathed your breath into our nostrils, gave us the ability to live out our ways, live out our lives in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. And that's what we seek to you and seek to do. So give us uh, humility and uh, just allow your spirit to make our path straight, we pray in